I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Julia Borston is best known as CNBC's senior tech and media reporter. During COVID, she wrote a book called When Women Lead, What We Achieve, Why We Succeed, and What We Can Learn, which is just the greatest title. She interviewed 120 women business leaders. These were women who are breaking new ground and creating a female-forward leadership model that is as disruptive as it is successful. I hope you enjoyed this interview. There's a lot for both men and women at every stage of business to learn from Julia's book. Julia Borson is the author of a new book called When Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, and How We Can Learn From Them. And she is also CNBC's senior tech and media reporter and mother of two young sons. So this conversation is going to be slightly preaching to the choir because I feel like we're all aligned in what you say in your book, why it's so important that we model leadership based on what women are currently doing, the women who are succeeding at doing it, and then spread that out widely. So thank you for being here, but also thank you for writing this book so that there is a guide for best practices in how women should model themselves, but also how men should model themselves after women in the workforce. So thank you. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I have to say, writing this book was really a gift for me. I got to interview so many amazing women. It's now been so awesome to be able to talk to amazing women around the country about it and about sort of how everyone's trying to figure out how to unlock their their own potential right now. So in this conversation, first, I want to start off with saying What made you write this book? Why this book? Why now? So I have been a business reporter my entire career. My first six years out of college, I was a reporter for Fortune magazine. For the past 16 years, I've been at CNBC um, as an on-air reporter, first covering media, then media, social media, now media and tech. And I've interviewed literally thousands of people, the vast majority of whom have been men, the vast majority of whom have been white men. So I've interviewed CEOs, COOs, investors, analysts, and obviously, it you know, CNBC is just interviewing people who are reflective of the broader business power landscape, and it's mostly white men. So I found as I was interviewing more and more women, largely through my interest in startups, because I do this thing called the Disruptor 50 List, the women I was interviewing were so personally inspiring to me. And I would leave these interviews, and I was struck on one hand by how different they seemed and how they really seem to be solving problems differently than their male counterparts, but also how little access to capital they had. And I kept on coming across these studies and reports about how women have drawn 3% of venture capital dollars in the past decade. The numbers are declining. You know, the percentage of women reaching the C-suite, you know, it has been increasing, but it's still really, really small. And so I just kept on thinking these women are exceptional. People need to know their stories. And it started off me just sort of wanting to like pay it forward. I got to benefit from hearing their stories and I wanted other women to hear those stories too. And then the more interviews I did, the more I understood I needed to really 
put data into this book and that especially men would not take my book about how awesome female leaders are seriously if it wasn't incredibly data-driven. So I ended up reading about 300 academic studies and weaving in those studies to explain what it is that these women are doing that is so effective. So can you give an example of some of the women that you talked to when you were doing your research and, and how did you like embed yourself with them? Well, I I feel like I was very lucky to get to do this during the pandemic because I started off doing interviews, mostly interviewing VCs, a, a couple of CEOs before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic hit, I was at home, everyone was at home, and I had this opportunity to like get people to do interviews with me who might have been too busy or traveling or inaccessible otherwise. And I also think there was this really important moment of everyone being really reflective, like, why do I do things the way I do? Why am I, you know, so focused on making this company succeed when there are so many other challenges? Like trying just really getting people as they were trying to understand their own motivation and their own drive. So I wanted the book to be a combination of stories about people you've never heard of before. So the next generation of amazing leaders to really represent the vast diversity there is in successful female leadership. And then other stories I wanted to be about women who you have heard of, like Gwyneth Paltrow or Reese Witherspoon or Whitney Wolford, the CEO of Bumble, but just giving you a different insight into them and the, the reason for their success or what was behind their success. So a combo of like the familiar with a new take and the totally unfamiliar to broaden the image of what successful leadership is. And you say that there's specific qualities that all of the women have that set them apart from how men lead typically that really contribute to their success. And as you interviewed these 120 women, you found the commonality. And what were those commonalities? Well, I would say the number one thing, so these women are very different from each other. Obviously, there's a huge amount of variety and diversity, even within this cohort of successful female leaders. One thing they did really all have in common is like a massive growth mindset. This idea that no one was born fantastic at anything. And whatever their natural skills were or their natural instincts are, they all really push themselves to improve, to iterate, to figure out how to be better at the things they were good at and to compensate for their weaknesses. And that was the universality. And by the way, I'm sure this is true of male leaders as well, but the sense of like really understanding like self-knowledge, understanding yourself and your strengths and weaknesses, and then using that to very productively and proactively push progress. And I think there's this myth of this, the founder is like the guy who drops out of college and he's ready to run a company and take on the world, like the Mark Zuckerberg out of a dorm room or like the Google guys out of a garage, but like no one is taking on the world when they're 22 years old. And it's just this myth. And I think that myth is really intimidating, especially for women, because I feel like I'm only now starting to come into my power and my my self-knowledge and understanding. And I think this idea or this myth that people are like ready to be CEOs when they're 22 just ends up intimidating a lot of other people. The Sam Blankman freed of it all. That something exactly. that would never happen to a woman because yeah. they're not walking in selling you know, the bravado of it exactly. and just the entitlement of that. But Such on intense. the flip side of that, as you said, 2% of VC money goes to women. 43% of small businesses are owned by women. Mm-hmm. So there's a delta there that is a huge problem. Huge and problem, huge, huge problem. problem. But as a female founder of a business that is founded by women, for women, and our entire, all the women we work with are women, it's a very scary proposition 
to walk into the world of like, okay, so I'm going to go take that venture capital money. And that seems like then you're expecting me to be Mark Zuckerberg. The, yeah. the expectation and the risk and the failure is enormous. And women aren't necessarily programmed to take that risk. And so I wonder in some ways if that is contributes to why there are so few women who are willing to like put themselves out there like that, because we are entrepreneurial and the numbers show it. And we're really yeah. successful leaders. It's just a system set up to like take you down in a lot of ways or not it's, support yeah. you. It's so interesting. So the Sam Bankman Freed story has been crazy. And I, I was in New York talking to some women last week and a couple at two different events, people asked me, what would have happened to Sam Bankman Freed if he had been a woman? Like, would his would this takedown be much more dramatic? Would people, would he be in jail already? Or whatever the questions were. And I said, if Sam Bankman Freed were Samantha Bankman Freed, he never would have been able to raise that money. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, he never would have been able to have access to the capital to be able to have such a massive fraud because he never would have even gone to that place. So I think that's the first point, but also that he probably, if, if it were a woman, she would be unlikely to have had that bravado or the, the willingness to exaggerate things that sort of both tied to his success and now to his downfall. But I think the key thing that, and one reason I really wanted to write this book is the fact that Elizabeth Holmes is the best comparison to Sam Baker. Yeah. But there is one, one of her. One. There's one of her. That's it. There is one of her. And yet that one of her has drawn an incredible amount of attention. And I obsessively watched every TV show about her. And I listened to the podcast about the trial, the whole thing. Like I get the fascination with her. I am part of that. But the problem is, is that she becomes representative of female founders. I was talking to a female CEO who's in the biotech space who just raised tens of millions of dollars for her company. And she told me that her mom said to her when she told her mom about the VC funding, well, don't be the next Elizabeth Holmes. And like, if this... CEO's mom is saying that, then the dominant image in society of female founders in tech is Elizabeth Holmes. And that is wrong. It is flat out wrong. And so part of why I want to write this book is to explain to the world and to show to the world, these are what female leaders look like. They are not Elizabeth Holmes. Here are dozens of successful, money-making, profitable female leaders and that is the image that I want women like those in your network to see. And also the men who are making the decisions about where to invest. They need to have these other examples. So that's sort of like my Samantha Bankman Freed analysis of it. I like but, Samantha. <laughs> I mean, by the way, she, first of all, she probably wouldn't have done the fraud. And second of all, she definitely would have had access to that money to even get that far. But I think to your point about this disconnect, the Delta, as you call it. The other reason I want to write this book is because there is so much data about the fact that female-led companies are more successful. Public companies with female CEOs, female CFOs, they perform better. Startups with female CEOs, they yield returns to their investors a year earlier on average. You know, they tend to be raise less money and be more profitable. Whether you're VCs, if you increase the number of women who are investing at VCs, those companies perform better. So it's not like there's one data point that shows that female leaders do well. It's like there's a dozens of them, which is why I always joke. I was like, this is why we have the 40 pages of endnotes in my book, because I really wanted to put all this data in here. Because I think that investors and people in general need to understand that like having female leadership isn't like a nice thing to do. It's just financially smarter. 
And it's like changing that conversation to be like, it's just smarter to have more women in leadership. But I do think that the narrative around VCs, the stats are discouraging to women and do discourage women from going out there and trying to raise money. And then some women who do go and raise money don't like the pressure to grow at this crazy pace to meet those VC expectations. So it becomes a little bit of a vicious cycle But ultimately, women should have access to venture capital when it makes sense for them, because that'll enable them to really scale their companies in the same way as men can. But there are all these structural issues that are discouraging to women who are successful and are entrepreneurial. And so I think that it all needs to get sorted out. It's so complex because... I, you know, I, I, I'm part of a lot of women's groups, women founder groups, and you hear how hard it is to get a business off the ground that needs to have funding, right? The access to that funding is so difficult and the sale is so long and, and the road is so hard. And then the expectation of the return, like you said, it's a cycle and I understand it's a business. And so that is the way that the business is set up. That is what the expectation of the return for they, everyone is making money for somebody else. I get it. But there isn't the ability to then grow a business in a way that maybe makes sense for a lot of the women who want to grow a business. And so you're stuck in a place where you're like, okay, well, then I'm not going to take venture money and I'm going to go off and I'm going to do it differently or I'm going to build this small business or you know we've done it with a second shift where we basically just grow and make money to pay for ourselves and that's the business that we have and that's been the decision that we made because we felt it was more sustainable as a business to be able to grow that way than to make promises that we wouldn't necessarily be able to fulfill because so- we've seen a lot of women do that make yeah. these promises, they wind up having to sell out, especially, I mean, we can get to this economic landscape in a second, where if you don't, you're shut down. That's yeah. it. It's over. And there should be other models of how you can get money. But my question, long intro, is it is important for women to play in the venture sandbox. It is not, we can't just remove ourselves. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's something, and so the first chapter of my book is all about laying bare, laying totally out there the way the VC business works. And I think a lot of women don't even want to participate in that world because they know it's going to be so much harder for them to get access to it. Other women are wary of getting wrapped up into something and then have VCs saying, okay, we're going to pump money into you, but then we expect to see this type of growth and this type of growth and this type of growth. And the women are thinking, well, that's not what's going to be workable for the 10-year plan of my company. Like I want to run this business in five years, 10 years. And so I think that's why it's really important to really understand what the expectations are, but also to really think about finding investors who are the best fit for your business. I think a lot about this woman, Julia Collins, who founded a company called Planet Forward. And she's a perfect example of this issue of dealing with VC because she originally, she's she'd worked in the food industry for a while and she co-founded a company called Zoom Pizza. Z-U-M-E. And it was a Jetsons-like company where they had robots that were baking pizza in the back of trucks to deliver on their way to their destination. So it was like a multi-billion dollar valuation for a robot pizza company. It seemed like peak Silicon Valley, the kind of thing you'd hear about in the Silicon Valley TV show. And they ended up raising money from SoftBank, 
which has a reputation for pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into startups so that they can dominate the landscape. But as a result, because they're pumping in so much money, they often expect really, really dramatic growth. So Julia Collins had founded this company in part because she really cared about the environment and she wanted to figure out a business that could have a positive environmental impact, like using data to estimate how many pizza ingredients you're going to need to minimize waste, that kind of thing. And then ultimately she was like in this robot pizza company. She's like, this is not what's meaningful to me. So when, after she had her first child, she said, this is not meaningful to me. We have SoftBank involved. It's expectations are of crazy growth, not necessarily sustainable. So she quit and she founded this company, Planet Forward, which is about regenerative agriculture. One really interesting thing I found is that women are more likely to practice gratitude. Gratitude enables patience. So if you think about why I've seen so many examples of women focus more on long-term planning, there's really this correlation between being grateful and understanding the value of where you are right now. So you're not anxious for this like near-term win. Like what can I get to have like the big payoff like right now? You're thinking what's going to make more sense over the long term? This is something I've seen across the board for women. And so Julia Collins, she didn't take $100 million from SoftBank. She took smaller checks from women and people of color who she knew would be aligned with her values and would work with her to achieve the right kind of growth. Not unsustainable, crazy growth where she would be forced to, to sell because she couldn't keep it up, but finding the right partners, like seeing her investors as people who she was excited to make money for, not just the white men who tend to dominate the investing world, and also who she knew would have the right value system for establishing the path to this company's success. I love that. And I want to talk about gender equity. A big piece of what what and why you wrote this book was so that we can talk about the lack of gender equity and top leadership, but also the need and why it is so important for that to be the goal. And the second shift, if you don't know, was set up as the mission is to create gender equity by providing women pathways and community and the skills and development they need to stay in the workforce so that more women are in positions of leadership. And then they can sort of like trickle down, make change that brings everybody up with them. And that's why our, our missions are totally aligned. So I'm so grateful to you. It, it is. And it's hard because that is what needs to happen. And it is really important for future generations. It's important for now. If we don't change the system, then it just stays exactly the same. And and that is not okay. And it's not beneficial to anyone, nor does it make financial success for businesses. But changing the system is hard. So one of the things that we were set up to do is we have jobs, we have clients, we go, we talk to them, we get the jobs, we set up a platform where the job is connected to the women who are in our community, and then they can apply for the job. When women come to us, they create a profile, they put in you know, all the skills and experience they have. We did this because I was a TV reporter in my past life. And when I wanted to switch careers, I found it very hard to think about what I could do next. It was like, well, if you don't want to be a reporter, people go into like PR or like comms and politics. That's what they did in 2003, whatever. And so now we were like, we're going to build this platform and it's going to be skills-based because it's not about what you did and this, you know, your title. It's about what you are able to do in your skills. This is the hardest sell of the business. Getting companies to get out of the thought pattern 
that they think of when they want to hire somebody. Oh, well, you didn't do that. You can never, we can never hire that person. They don't have this relevant experience. And you call it pattern matching, right? So I would love for you to describe that and why it is the thing that sets us back and really holds back this whole idea of hiring and and thinking outside the box when you're creating opportunity for women. Yeah, I mean, it's so, everything you're saying is so dead on and it's so sort of entrenched in our culture and so problematic. And so I write a lot in the book, especially in a chapter towards the end about the importance of moving away from the resume. What you're saying about focusing on skills is essential. If you just focus, hire people based on what their experience is, you're only backwards looking. And especially if you're looking at at racial and gender equity, you're going to be eliminating so many people because they didn't grow up in a culture which maybe told them that they had to go be an engineer. Or if you're only going to hire people who, you know, major in engineering at Stanford, you're going to be excluding the vast majority of women and people of color. So I think that there's this this real awareness recently about the importance of moving away from the resume, hiring based on potential and not based on experience. You're, I see you're like, it's, you're not. Yeah. I mean, that's a great idea. However, we've been doing this, Gina and I started this company in 2014. So we were pushing for that and we were pushing for remote work and we were pushing for flexibility as a way to retain women and So I I think in the past few years, especially COVID pushed the boundary on making companies rethink remote bias and like the bias around location. So they're much more flexible and open to that. They're much more flexible on like the schedule thing. So hopefully the next frontier is this idea of like, if you weren't an investment banker, you're never going to be one. That's it. Would not. That's a bad example. Yeah, but but so for instance, like there are these hiring tools that, especially for entry level people, I think you're focusing more on people who are queer. we're more senior, mid and senior. senior. Level. But for for hiring, there are these tools like ones called Pymetrics that basically yes. says why should we be hiring you based on like what extracurriculars you had in college and in high school? Like let's hire you based on your soft skills and what you have the potential to learn. But back to the problem, which is that what you're working to address, which is this idea of pattern matching. I don't. Don't use the word unconscious bias because I think that term is used so broadly, it's almost lost its meaning. We know there's unconscious bias, but what specifically is happening here and that is damaging women and people of color is this concept of pattern matching. And I also really like to talk about pattern matching as opposed to unconscious bias is because pattern matching is very clear. There's no malice. I'm not saying anyone's intending to do ill. No one's like intentionally overlooking things, there's a human instinct to try to make people or ideas or businesses or anything you interact with fit into patterns that you're already familiar with. So investors are looking for founders who remind them of Mark Zuckerberg or remind them of the last batch of CEOs they had who were successful. So if you think about this in the investment standpoint, it's like, I'm an investor. I have to make a couple bets. I want to bet on something that feels safe because any investment is going to be risky. So I go with the pattern that I know has worked before. But if you keep on having investors bet on the guy who seems familiar and whose idea is similar to what worked before, that guy then becomes successful, sells his company, becomes an investor, and you have this vicious cycle. Continue, continue, continue. And the same group of guys or guys like them who went to the same universities are the ones who keep on getting funded, founding companies, becoming successful, then they fund companies. And it's literally the cycle continues. Pattern matching also happens in big corporate environments. 
you're a manager and you have to figure out who to promote. And you're like, well, this guy reminds me of the guy who's my boss, or this guy reminds me of the other managers. So you think I'm just going to keep promoting people who fit the pattern of what successful managers look like. Boards promote CEOs because they're like, well, we know this person with this background who worked as the CFO. And before that, you know, they're just looking for patterns. And I think it's really important as I talk to men about this to say, this is not malicious. I'm not telling you you're doing anything wrong. You're listening to your instincts, but stop listening to your instincts. It takes work. It takes work. It It takes work. It's hard. Don't listen to your instincts about people. Yeah. Figure out what the data is and use the data to overwhelm what bias you definitely have. Don't tell me you're not biased. Everyone has bias. Women have bias that ends up holding themselves back. So many of the women I interviewed in the book said, I didn't originally think that I was a CEO. It never occurred to me that I was going to be a CEO because I didn't have any examples of CEOs to think that I fit into that pattern. And so they were like, so it took me a while to realize, hey, I'm actually a CEO here. And I think that everyone needs to acknowledge the importance of those patterns and how they influence decisions we make. By the way, you're walking down the street, which you know person are you going to cross the street because you're afraid, oh, I saw a, a, a story about how there was violence in this neighborhood. Like we, there are patterns everywhere and it influences our decision-making. And in business, in any situation, it could be dangerous if you don't understand the dominance of these patterns. Back to Elizabeth Holmes. I wanted to share different patterns, right? Different patterns of what successful leaders look like. So when men are thinking about like, well, is this woman going to be the next Elizabeth Holmes? They say, oh no, maybe she's the next Katrina Lake. Maybe she's like one of these many women who have made money for the people who've invested in them. So I think that um, it's just a very simple way of explaining. Like you think about kids, like they're always looking for patterns. It's human nature. I mean, that's human nature. It keeps us safe in a lot of ways because it's it's what you you know, if you feel comfortable with, but it doesn't change the, it doesn't change the norm. It doesn't change the impact. Like there's such impact and it does take work to change it and to move society past it. And I've recently been calling out some of my male friends and, and colleagues on these things. And it's just so amazing how, how much there is of it in our society. I'm sure they don't even see it. No, but when you point it out to them, they're like, wow. Oh, yeah. I was telling a story about it. I was with a bunch of men at a a tech conference a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic. And one of the guys I was with said like, oh, I just had this great conversation with this guy. He's a founder. We're going to talk. They were wearing the same pants. They were wearing salmon colored pants. And they like struck up a conversation because they happened to be wearing the same pants and the same shoes. And I was like, oh, like, that's great. But like, think about that for a second. And we had this funny conversation where he's like, oh my God, didn't even occur to me. Like I am, I am just pattern matching for guys like me, like prep stories. And we all do it. But there was something about like, he was about to, he was like, I'm more open to investing in his company because we wear the same clothes. And I was like, I love it. Yeah. But to, to have that conversation, it like never even occurred to him. So my question is not my question, but you point out that in your book, that there are ways to break stereotype and bias. And part of that is building resilience and women coming together in small groups. And I love that because that's really at the basis of the second shift. We do a lot for our community because it is so important to be there for each other. Sometimes I think we live in a sorority a little bit because we are so together and there's almost 
bias on the other side. It's like anything that's too much is can be a little bit of a, a vacuum, but it's important to have those groups because it does create space for women to step outside of that. And to change our own patterns. I think it's yeah. so important. And what's so awesome about the the power of female community is it was something I always felt, right? Like I would have go to a women's dinner and meet women in different industries. And I would leave feeling all jazzed and excited, or I would like have a dinner with a group of my friends and I would cry about some challenge that I was dealing with. And I would know I felt better afterwards. So I knew it intrinsically, but then I found the data and there's so much data about the power of female networks to help each other. And on so many different levels, back to this idea of bias, right? Women are going to face bias and in so many different, and, and the negative impacts of pattern matching in so many different environments in business. Unless you're in a very female dominated company, which is incredibly rare, you're going to face it, period. Female dominated industries are few and far between. There was this amazing study that to me summed up the real value of these networks of women, like what you're doing. And it's this. There's research showing that if you tell women that they're going to be, that they don't tend to be good at a certain thing, like there was a study that looked at female engineers. So the professors brought together female engineers. They said, women are, are bad at math and, and engineering. Here, take this math test, but we just want to like share this, this stereotype with you first. They say the stereotype, they give the women the math test. The women who had been doing great on these tests before, their test scores plummeted after hearing that stereotype. So just think about it like anytime you go in a room and you're like, you're the only one, you know there's a stereotype that women aren't good at finance or math or whatever these things are. The stereotypes do have a negative impact on performance, period. And it's good to acknowledge that. Then these professors tried a different thing. They put women together in other groups of female engineers. The women got to meet each other. They didn't know each other, but they were like, oh, there are other people like me who are female engineers in this male-dominated world. The professors told them the stereotype, women are bad at math, engineering. Then they gave them the test. Having been in that, what they call a microenvironment of other women, eliminated the negative impact of bias. Having heard the stereotype had zero impact on the test score performance. And other studies have found the same thing. This concept of a microenvironment, other people like you who are in a minority position, if you surround yourself with other people in that situation, then you will know those stereotypes don't apply to us. They're an image, but I'm not alone. I see the diversity and the power of the people like me, the women in your groups, and you're not going to let the stereotypes bother you as much. The stereotypes will not impact yeah. your performance. And so that's why it's so important to have these groups to battle the negative impact of bias and then also to structurally help each other with work and business challenges. Another study found that men benefit from having huge networks. A huge network for man correlates with better career performance. For women, you don't need to have the biggest network, but you do need to have a smaller and diverse and close-knit network. People who are not your best friends from growing up or the person who sits next to you at the office, but with different backgrounds, like the women you bring together, to together coach each other on how to manage work challenges. It's fa I think that's fascinating. And, and just like such a great piece of advice, especially when often in big companies, there's affinity groups, but then those can come under fire because it, it, the, the, the conversation is so complex right now. But it really does work. Small groups work. Small groups work. There was an interesting study that found that women's groups in general, the way they were traditionally structured benefited white women 
women, but not women of color. And that was a real wake-up call because companies were like, wait, why, why are we doing this in such a way that only benefits some of the women and not all the women? And so now there's this idea that if you layer different affinity groups on top of each other, you have women's groups, but you also have different groups for people of color, different identities, those affinity groups can act as microenvironments. And so have the microenvironments, but also have bridges into the macroenvironment. So I hope the women, you talked about it being in sorority, I hope the women in second shift, they really are helping each other, but they're also making introductions to the men who may hold the power and say, it's not just yeah. about us only helping each other, we're going to help each other into this broader universe. One of the things we see, and I think is just, it wasn't necessarily something that we set out to do, but I, it is an outgrowth of the ecosystem that we've built is that the second shift is built so people can come in and they can come out and you're, you're at different points in your life. You want a job, you're in a job. And so people wind up getting a job through us, then going into a company, then bringing the second shift as a resource into that company, and then hiring other women to follow behind them. And it is such an amazing thing to watch because it creates within whatever organization its own little ecosystem and paying it forward for other women. That's but awesome. I, I want to talk about one thing, and I know I'm being mindful of the time, knowing that you probably have to like be on air soon and go kill it. You look beautiful and ready, camera ready as always. Is the idea that you know not everybody here in our group is a leader or wants to be a leader or wants to be an entrepreneur? They are, you know. 86% working parents in some case, and they're just want to keep going, want to keep in the stream and want to, you know, work and be their best professional self. And you talk a lot about natural strengths. And I think we should touch on that because not everyone's going to Paltrow or even has the hopes to, to be that. And it's great that there are so many women leaders and that we're making strides on that side. But on a day-to-day -day in your own life, you can be the best leader, even if you have one person who works for you. Or nobody who works for you. I don't have anyone yeah. who works for me. I'm a TV <laughs> reporter. I have a producer who's my, my colleague. What's really interesting is, you know, I've worked at big companies my whole life. I've never been a CEO. I've never been any, I, mean, I would not, I, I never would have thought of myself as a leader until this book came out. And a couple of women were like, well, you're a leader. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm not leading anything. I'm like leading my kids around the museum or whatever it is, but I'm not leading anything. But I think that I really reframed for me the idea of what it means to lead and what it means to be a leader. And I feel like in all of our lives, I mean, so many days you're just like trying to get through the day and balance all the things that we're juggling and the expectations and the trying to make sure I don't drop too many balls. I mean, at least that's how I feel as a working mom with two kids and the, the phone calls from the school and someone's sick and the COVID or shutting down the class or whatever it is. I think that the reality is like we are all leading in our own way. And whether it's like setting an example for your family, and I think it's very important for working moms to understand the value of what they're bringing to their family simply by setting an example that mom works and does hard stuff and keeps on learning and changing. But also just like in whatever you're doing, you are a leader. Even if you have no one working for you, you don't need to be a manager to be a leader. But I think that everyone, in addition to needing to understand that they are their own type of leader, can think about unlocking their own personal strengths. So one thing that was really interesting to me in interviewing all these women is yes, there are certain commonalities. So women are more likely to lead with empathy. They're more likely to lead with vulnerability. I mentioned gratitude. Women are much more likely to practice gratitude and have that impact their performance at work. By the way, empathy and vulnerability are also true if you're just working as an employee. If you bring empathy to the workplace, you're going to be more strategic. I think 
so many men who I've talked to empathy about think that I mean like being nice to other people. And that that's not actually what empathy means. Empathy means being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. So if you're just an employee at the largest company, you're going to be able to relate better to your boss, to your colleagues, to your customers, to people you're negotiating against. If you can try to put yourself in their shoes and understand what their perspective is. So I think taking some of these skills that we as women sort of take for granted and really understanding how they could be incredibly strategic and valuable at work is really essential. So I mentioned gratitude correlating with patience, um, but also women are more likely to be communal in, in the way they are work, either as leaders or as employees. But this idea that women are more likely to bring in perspectives from across a group or across a team or organization, men are much more likely to be in a top-down, making decisions in the corner office, telling other people what to do approach. There was a really interesting study I write about in the book about conversational turn-taking. Teams with more women are more successful. Not teams that are gender balanced, but teams with more women are more successful. And the researchers were like, why is that? Why isn't it just gender balanced teams are more successful? They found that women are better at what they call conversational turn-taking. That just means that women are better at making sure everyone gets a chance to talk around the table. And I'm sure we could both think of like dinners where we're like, wait, we haven't heard from you. Like, you know, we haven't heard from you, Jessica. Like what's going on with you? But this idea of like really wanting to bring people in, these are things that may feel like just obvious, but actually are really valuable at work. And another one that I love thinking about is this idea of divergent thinking versus convergent thinking. Men are more likely to like say, we have a problem. Let's focus on the problem. Let's get this problem solved as quickly as possible. We're going to converge in on the problem. Women are more likely to say, hey, what about this tangential thing? Or like, does this connect with the thing we talked about last week? It's what my husband would call me like, you know, losing the thread, but I call it (laughs) like, like, can we just like get our calendar sorted out? This is too complicated. But what it really is, is pulling on threads of things that are tangential, but paint a bigger picture understanding of the world so that you can better solve the big picture of the problem rather than just putting a Band-Aid as a solution. And so I think it's things like this, where whether you're a leader or whether you're a cog in a wheel, your skills that you have inside you that you don't even associate with success in business or leadership are going to make you more successful. So I I think about it like unlocking your superpower and taking something that's a, a trait that you might even think of as a flaw and figuring out how to use it to your advantage. So like there are a number of women I interviewed who are introverts. They are self-professed introverts. And I was like, you know, you're an introvert. It was it hard to be a salesperson for your technology or to pitch to investors being an introvert. And the, these women who who I write about in the book, they say, we figured out how to use it to our advantage. So one woman who's the CEO of a biotech company called Lanza Tech, she is the most soft-spoken person I've ever interviewed in my life. And I'm like, how are you pitching your technology to, to investors, to, to factories, to all of these things? And she said, I'm a better negotiator because I hate to talk. I listen and I listen and I listen. And I figure out what they really want, not what they tell me they want at the beginning, but my ability to not feel anxious to get a word in edgewise makes me a better negotiator. And so I think we can all take our traits, stop thinking of them as flaws and reformulate how they could be superpowers. What's your superpower? I'm an obsessive question asker. It can be really annoying <laughs> to my friends. Sometimes they're like, enough of the questions already. But I think for me, it was about figuring out how to ask questions in a way that's not intrusive that's empathetic and supportive, and that's productive. 
And, and you, I mean, I don't know if my trait is curiosity or just like, I love to ask questions, but I think that is something that I've gotten much better at over time. And, you know, one of my best friends who was my roommate, when I first moved to New York out of college, like I used to drive her nuts with the questions because I didn't know how to do it in a way that was showing my love and support for her. And so both as a friend and in the, in the workplace, I feel like, and by the way, my job as a journalist is all about asking the right questions at the right time and understanding what to do with those questions that I think that I've really reformulated this trait into something that I think is that I can keep getting better at. And I know that I'm, I'm good at. So I think that's my superpower. What's yours? You honed it into a superpower. So it was and a I'm still skill. working on it. And I'm so, so it was a, a skill. skill. It was a skill. It was something that you had. It was something that you knew how to what to do with it, but you made it by, I'm sure, thinking about it, working at it, figuring out what you were doing wrong and how you were how you were losing the thread, and then made it into something that was a career builder. So yeah, that's what, really, what's your superpower? I think connecting with people. That was one of the reasons why I always wanted to go into journalism. Part of it's curiosity, but I'm always really curious about people and things. And, you know, the questions are just part of the curiosity, but just learning new things and connecting to people, connecting other people to each other and building the second shift in some ways felt like a strange side jump from what I had been doing. But then when you, you know, connect dots backwards, you're like, oh no, that makes total sense. Yeah. And it's just a, like sort of an outgrowth of something I, I, uh, Gina wrote that she's my superpower. She's my co-founder. <laughs> I agree with you, Gina. You are my, my superpower. If I didn't have you, we are each other's in a lot of ways and we're very lucky. But I think that it took something I really liked to do and just moved it into a different field that felt a little more me and a little more purposeful. I had been kind of covering TV in like the Bronx and in the Hamptons, and this gave it a different type of platform. And I love doing it. Yeah, you love doing it. But I also feel like the things that you love doing can become such superpowers. And so many people have asked me like, how did you write this book while you have a full-time job? And I was like, cause I was so excited about it. Like, I feel like those things that you're so passionate about, you can, you can use that passion to overcome all the challenges that come with, with life and, and the, the juggle of, of everything. But wait, I see a question from Gina in here. Should I answer it? Yeah, go ahead. So Gina asks, how do women capitalize on the change workplace? Since we all know everyone doesn't have to be at the office all the time. How do women lead in this moment and make sure we don't go back to the way it was that didn't really work for women? I think it's really interesting. And by the way, this new change workplace has been incredibly transformative for me. I think one thing I'm worried about is this expectation that people are going to be back in the office. And if women opt for hybrid, I do think it's going to hurt them professionally in environments where men are there all the time. And so I hope companies create consistent guidelines around promotion, especially, and also around expectations for the workplace. So it's not like the squeaky wheel or the men who are around all the time get all the promotions. And I think that's a big risk for this new hybrid workplace. My employer, NBC Universal, is mandating three days in the office for everyone. And I think actually that's a good thing because it's the same three days. And so like, if I'm definitely going to be home as much as possible then it doesn't, they don't hold that against me. So anyways, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting to see how it all plays out, but um, I am a little concerned about that. I think that it's all about intentionality. 
And I think your community is really focused on intentionality. But I think for women right now in this moment of transition and change and people trying to figure out new patterns, I think women especially need to be really intentional in figuring out their priorities, their personal priorities, which are different from everyone else's. Everyone's priorities are different. And I just had a kind of a, a meeting about this with my two of my best friends, but just really laying out like what my what our priorities are right now. And it may be different than your priorities a year ago, but then also aligning priorities with long-term goals and figuring out where in the workplace you need to be to accomplish that. But I feel like there's, on one hand, the advantages of being home is you could do things in your own timeline and be incredibly efficient because you're not listening to people talk about football, which is incredibly distracting for me, at least. I don't care about football. But it's sort of the intentionality, the lack of distraction, but then also figuring out what you need to get to uh, what you need to do to to achieve your long-term goals. So I think that it's all sort of interconnected, but your superpowers can be a part of that. So if your long-term goals are about changing your career or about promotions or about doing things that are more entrepreneurial within your big company, that I think that figuring out how to align those goals, your you know, stick to your priorities, your personal priorities while achieving those goals. I just think you need to be much more intentional about like where the workplace itself, like this conference room I'm in right now, fits into that. I think basically what we're saying in all of this is that it's really important to think about it. Think about all the things. Think about what you want in your goals. Think about what your superpower and your strengths are. Think about what you don't like and how to reframe it and turn it into a positive. Don't just take money to take money. What, what's the goal and can you reach it? And, and withstand what happens in between. So in general, use what you said are the, the, the basis for what makes women succeed, which are, would be your empathy, your vulnerability, your humility, purpose and profit, all of those things, right? All of the things that make women better leaders, turn the spotlight onto yourself as well and think about how you can do that in your own life and your own career for the best success for you. And so you can show up for your job and your family and your friends and your life and be as successful as possible. Yeah, and I think actually this time of year is all about all these other people were getting holiday gifts for or dealing with the end of the school things or whatever it is that we're juggling right now. But I actually think this is a really important time not to necessarily make resolutions because resolutions are like, I'm going to work out, I'm going to, you know, make healthier food or whatever it is, but not about resolutions, but about personal priorities and goals. And so I think about this time of year as like a reset for like, what do I really care about? What do I really want to accomplish next year? Don't resolve to be better, resolve to to do the things that really matter most to you. And I think that women often don't give themselves the time and space to do that, which is why I think what you're doing is so important and essential. Thank you. Okay. Last question. Our tagline is always making work work for you. So how do you make work work for you? How do you create the space to be so successful in the life that you lead, which is busy and on air? Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've tried to drop attention to the things that I don't really care about and to let go of the things that I used to always want to be involved in. And part of it is like, 
understanding when I face something that's biased and instead of spiraling because someone said something to me that seemed insulting, like, did I do something wrong? Just being able to be like, this isn't about me. I didn't fulfill his expectation that women are nurturing all the time. So like he's made that nasty comment to me. And I think really like letting things go has been a big part of that. Just like like emotionally, like I'm not gonna let that bother me. I'm gonna let that go. And then I think logistically, the pandemic showed me how much I could accomplish if I didn't waste time. And like the pandemic was about not wasting time driving to and from work, not wasting time in the travel time, like schlepping around the country. You can't be efficient all that time. Like it wastes a lot of time. And I think I now think about, again, the intentionality of like, how do I want to be spending my time and just trying to be a little, like, even though I'm commuting now or traveling, when I do have time, not just wasting it deleting emails or reading random articles or on social media, but just like, what do I actually want to accomplish? Not because I need to accomplish it, but because I know that's the most important thing. So I think just sort of like reframing my sense of time. I'm a TV reporter. I know that 60 seconds is an eternity on live television. So I think, you know this. So I think I can, I've sort of thought differently about how I'm using my time, which can be like an, if I have an hour to get something done, that can be a huge amount of time if it's really uninterrupted and I'm really focused and not distracted. So I think I make work work for me by dropping the stuff that doesn't really matter and thinking about being most efficient with my time so I could do what I care about most. Thank you so much, Julia. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate you writing this book. I think it's incredibly important pulling all of these different threads together and inspiring women to become the leaders that they need to be, not want to be, need to be. Well, I'm so inspired by what you're doing. And I really feel like what you are doing with your business is giving women the tools that I write about in this book. I I write about the stories and the data and I explain why it's so important. And you're really putting it into action. And it's just so awesome to, to see all this align. Thank you so much. Have the best day. Thank you for taking your time with the Second Shift community and for being here and for all of it. I hope one day maybe we can meet in person. Yes, let's meet in person. Thank you so much for everything. Take care. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.